0: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Philip Terzian, literary editor of the Weekly Standard, here with my weekly podcast on the books and arts section of the Weekly Standard. And this week, uh, I'm talking about the November 10th issue of the Weekly Standard. Um, of course, this being an election week, um, the journalistic world has been concentrated on the elections last week, and our magazine is no exception. But uh, my view always is that the books and arts section is, well, not exactly a refuge uh, from all that. Nevertheless, um, um, uh, all politics 24-7 can get a little tedious even for those of us in the biz. So I try to offer a little bit of contrast and relief and a few other subjects that might be of interest. and This week I think we've come up with a real winner. It's a book called The Vulgar Tongue, Green's History of Slang by Jonathan Green, who's an Englishman. Uh, It's published by Oxford University Press and reviewed by Sarah Lodge, who's a, uh, a Scottish academic who frequently writes about literature and culture for our pages. And it's a fun book. I think i can 't think of a more interesting subject to read about than the origins and development of language, not necessarily technical scientific side of it, but just how languages arose and how they develop and how they change, and why one set of human beings in one place end up communicating with one another um, in a different way from people in the next valley and slang, of course is the um, uh, the sort of down market version of language it's the words and the phrases uh, that we use uh, to communicate in particular ways and of course there's a there are kind of class differences there's the slang of the working class and the slang of the fox hunting set and the slang of academics and the slang of people in show business and athletes and what have adolescents, of course, um, when people talk about having their own private language in the particular worlds they live in, they're usually talking about slang. So it's an interesting book, and of course a very um, Sarah Lodge always writes an interesting essay, and I think you will find it a very rewarding reading. That is followed by something a little more serious, but nonetheless important and actually interesting. Um, it's a review by Andrew Studerford, another British writer, I have to say. Um, But it's a book by a Swedish academic, and don't be put off by that phrase, but a Swedish academic who's actually a a very interesting writer, and the book she wrote is called Everything is Wonderful, Memories of a Collective Farm in Estonia, and it's one of those uh, really kind of academic studies that is... um, Uh, Actually, the subject that she writes about was originally the topic of her doctoral dissertation, but this is a kind of popular version of it, and it's been updated. But it's one of those academic topics that that sounds dry as dust, but in fact uh, is really quite interesting and has real uh, meaning and application outside of its particular subject. You don't have to know or care the least bit about Estonia uh, for example to find this fascinating and what it is is she um, is a sociologist I guess or anthropologist and went to Estonia right uh, well not right after but in the handful of years after the collapse of the Soviet Union when Estonia after uh, 50 some years of, of being part of the Soviet Union was suddenly an independent uh, country again and she went to a the, the remnants of a collective farm sort of out in the I mean I, I frankly I think most Americans think of Estonia as being at the other end of the earth and the collective farm she goes to is the other end of the earth within Estonia. So it's an interesting description of how History affects people in large and small ways, even though Estonia is now independent and no longer a communist state and no longer under the thumb of the Russians. um, Nevertheless, um, life goes on uh, in ways that we might not guess. Life stays the same in many ways. Life changes radically in other ways. Um, Freedom and independence and a change in historic status... um, of course doesn't necessarily mean uh, overnight change and as with everything um, the change that history records is often much more slow and much more gradual and a little less comprehensive than we tend to think. Uh, We were always taught in school that the Roman Empire ended in 400 AD and of course uh, you have this notion in your mind when you're in fourth grade of uh, it's new year's day at 400 and suddenly everyone in the roman empire is uh, suddenly a Spaniard or a Frenchman or a German or a Saxon or a Tuscan or whatever and of course it isn't that way at all it, the the end of the roman empire was uh, began long before that and it took several centuries for it to finally truly disappear and it's the same in this little corner of the former soviet empire which Uh, Sigrid Rousing records so interestingly and which Andrew Stutterford writes about so interesting. It's it's really a fascinating piece. That is followed by a piece by Mike Gonzalez, who is a political uh, scientist uh, currently at the Heritage Foundation. And it's a book that in many ways was timely for this election. It's called, excuse me, A Race for the Future, How Conservatives Can Break the Liberal Monopoly on Hispanic Americans. The author is Mike Gonzalez. Um, And it's an interesting uh, exploration of what the Latino vote consists of in the United States, why it has gone back and forth in recent elections. I mean, it's a huge and growing block in the electorate. And, of course, both parties are chasing after it. And it has been the conventional wisdom in recent years that um, the Republicans just have no hope um, Gonzalez begs to differ, and for very interesting reasons, and reasons which I might say have to some degree been vindicated by the results in last week's midterm elections. So it's a prescription for what the Republican Party can do to stick to its principles and by so doing attract uh, Hispanic voters who, whose party loyalty is, is by no means a set thing at this point. That is followed by a, a delightful, uh, I mean, a, if any book about war can be said to be delightful, but it, an interesting account um, by, uh, the, the review is by Tema Ehrenfeld, and the book is entitled Elephant Company, the inspiring story of an unlikely hero and the animals who helped him save lives in World War II. It's a book from Random House, the author is Vicki Constantine Croak, and it's about the one of the lesser known but but quite interesting theaters of war during the Second World War the the what used to be called the CBI the China Burma India Theater most of um, American and British troops were largely involved in fighting in Burma uh, and and China of course um, but the the book is about a a British Colonel named James Williams who decided to, uh, for the first time, I guess, since Hannibal 2,000 years ago, decided to employ elephants as um, instruments of war. And in fact, of course, in Burma, where American troops and largely British troops um, fought, elephants were, uh, despite their size and comparative unwieldiness, were incredibly uh, versatile and useful and effective uh, combatants in the war against the Japanese, and it's a it's a fascinating description of how they were used in the in the in the CBI theater and how they were used really to make victory um, possible. It was a long, tough, not very much celebrated campaign in Burma in the Second World War, but it ended in victory for the Allies, and elephants played a part of it. That is followed by a um, very interesting piece by Paula Dietz who's the editor of the Hudson Review um, who's writing <coughs> about the new Acropolis museum in Athens um, uh, those of you who have been fortunate enough to visit Athens and see the um, see the Acropolis are may be aware that a, a there always <coughs> excuse me there always was a museum attached to the Acropolis, but now there's a much much bigger and grander and more ambitious one, which she likes very much, and it's a the essay is actually a a, a kind of description of what the Acropolis consists of, obviously just more than the Parthenon, and and um, why the why the uh, depiction of the Acropolis and the explanation of the Acropolis is so well done at this new Acropolis Museum. She also makes an interesting point about the. Uh, Um, the Elgin marbles which of course are in the British Museum they were sold to Lord Elgin who was the British ambassador in Athens in the early 19th century and have been at the British Museum ever since where they've been seen by untold tens if not hundreds of millions of people and of course there is a um, an ongoing controversy about whether they should be returned to to Greece, I noticed that George Clooney's new uh, wife, who's a British barrister, is advising the Greek government on this. But there's an interesting paragraph in, uh, in Paula Dietz's piece, which I will read. In touring the Parthenon Gallery and recalling my first view of the Elgin marbles in London and their influence on my life, I suddenly had this perception. Although the Parthenon marbles were born in Greece... They have been raised in England, where the British Museum became their conduit to the rest of the world, even inspiring poems like John Keats's Ode on a Grecian Urn. Never considered fakes, the castes have themselves become art for display in museums and art academies, which I think in um, uh, just a few dozen words um, makes a, a, a strong case for keeping the Elgin marbles where they are. Our final piece, alas, we don't have a movie review this week, but... John Poet Hortz, but we will next week uh, is a uh, I always try to feature new poets um, if possible and this week we have a piece by Julianne Dudley who's assistant editor of the Weekly Standard on a new book of poetry um, by a young poet named Chloe Honum uh, H-O-N-U-M entitled The Tulip Flame It's it's very eloquent and very elegant poetry I was quite Uh, Struck by The Tulip Flame when I first saw it uh, at the Sewanee Writers' Conference in Tennessee last summer, and I really wanted us to say something about the book, and Julianne has done a very good uh, brief essay on Chloe Honum, the debut poet, and her uh, really quite extraordinary um, debut collection entitled The Tulip Flame. Anyway, that is this week's Books and Arts section for the November 10th issue of the Weekly Standard. I have enjoyed yakking about it with you, and I very much look forward to talking about next week's issue with you next week. In the meantime, thank you very much.